When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Tomahawk Take podcast. Uh, we have a special edition of the podcast for you today. As always, I am your host, Jake Mastriani, and with us is Alan. Hello. And Fred. Hi there. And also joining us today is a special guest, Carlos Colazzo from Baseball America, uh, and he covers the draft for them. And uh, I'm sure you all know who Carlos is. You, you see him and read his stuff all the time. Um, just a great uh, insider and also a, a former Tomahawk Take writer as well. So uh, glad to have uh, Carlos. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Happy to be here. So, Carlos, we're coming off a bit of a, a different draft for sure and one that uh, was a, li- a little little weird um, being only five rounds as opposed to 40 rounds in the past. And, you know, things obviously went a little different for a lot of teams. But obviously, this being a Braves podcast, I wanted to open up getting your thoughts on how the Braves did in the draft. Obviously, they only had the four picks. Losing the pick was signing Will Smith in the offseason. Uh, they also lost one for signing Ozuna. They gained one for uh, for losing Josh Donaldson, and those kind of washed out. So essentially had four picks. Didn't have a pick from pick 25 to 97, so there was a huge gap there. And that also hurt some of the, the bonus pool money that they had to spend. And now that we know, as far as the recording of this, that they've signed three of the four players they drafted. The only one not signed so far is uh, their fifth-round pick, Bryce Elder, unless I've missed that somewhere. But uh, I know we do have those three players confirmed. Jared Schuster, uh, Franklin, and Strider uh, have all been signed. At this point, I'm going to exercise podcast editor's privilege since there has been an update since that was recorded. Bryce Elder is now signed $850,000 by the Braves. All their draft picks are now inked. So, uh, Carlos, if you don't mind, just give us your overall thoughts on how the Braves did in the draft with the four selections that they had. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I was curious to see if they were going to stick to more of a college-heavy draft, kind of like they pivoted towards last year. I was Curious to see if this was like a new shift in philosophy with them or if that was just kind of how the board fell to them in the 2019 draft. But, I mean, it seems uh, pretty clear at this point that the Braves are targeting more college performers than they have in the past. Uh, their previous scouting department has obviously gone on to different things now. New people are in charge, uh, new philosophies in place. But there are none of those toolsy kind of high upside high school types that the Braves previously drafted high in the draft this year it's definitely and obviously it's it's hard to extrapolate too much on just four picks like you were talking about but it's definitely a college performer based class i don't know that there's the ceiling of a lot of other draft classes this year with the collection of players they have um but there are some solid players i think with three of them you can see very uh clear paths to a major league role in some capacity jared schuster is probably the most interesting player in this class i mean the fact that he's the sole first-round pick is, is probably not too shocking that I think that. He's a guy who 
made tremendous strides over the past calendar year, both in his strike throwing and his velocity, kind of solidifying himself as one of the better left-handed pitchers in this draft class, uh, a very college pitching heavy draft class. So I thought it was fascinating just to see them continue to take college players. The Spencer Strider pick in the fourth round was a bit of a surprise for us. Obviously, he wasn't ranked on our VA 500 and in a draft with just 160 players. Uh, I think we had 12 or 13 non-VA 500 players drafted. So he was one of them. That was a little bit surprising. He's maybe more of that old school type of pick in that he, he has had some some big stuff in the past. He's shown some interesting pure stuff, and, and the Braves have done a good job developing those arms. So I think three arms in the Braves system that, that they can probably feel pretty good about player development. And then Jesse Franklin is a guy who has a pretty good all-around tool set. Um, so it depends on what you like. If you like upside, you probably aren't, aren't thrilled with this draft just because uh, it's a bunch of college performers, but I think it's a solid collection of talent for having four four picks and uh, I think a bottom three bonus pool. Well, my guess on this was that the Braves had some sort of a plan and we're going to try and do the under slot deals and see if they could snag somebody later that fell to them. But it's not really quite the way it turned out. Uh, and in fact, today was a little shocking to see Strider go at, at virtually slot. So, Honestly, I'm not sure that um, my question is relevant anymore, but I was just wanted, trying to figure out if you had a view of their plan that was uh, different from that, or, or do you just think that something got messed up along the way, maybe? Well, I do think they were probably one of the teams that, that might have gotten their pockets picked with Nick Bitsko. I had heard late that they were really interested in him. Um, obviously, Tampa Bay took Bitsko right in front of them, and I think there are a number of other teams that were maybe intrigued with the prep right-hander in the first round. Um, so it would have been interesting to see if the Braves would have taken him if he fell to them. Um, as far as like going over slot with, with later round picks, there are still plenty of guys they could have done that with. I mean, there are a lot of really talented high school players that are now going to college because they went past over for the entire draft. I mean, there's a guy, Kevin Parada, who I talked about ad nauseum. I'm really high on his bat. There was a pitcher in Carson Montgomery out of Florida. Uh, who has a really electric two-pitch mix and kind of that athletic upside type that the Braves previously might have been high on. So there were plenty of guys to go try and do something like that later in the draft, even with four picks. So it was there if they wanted to, but we saw a lot of teams really kind of steer towards signability players in this year's class. I, I don't know the specific numbers on all the Braves guys right now. It sounds like they played it maybe more straight up, at least on their board. And I will say the Strider pick is off the board for us. It's certainly possible that that the Braves are just significantly higher than we are or, or the scouts that we talked to when we kind of compiled our list. But no, it, it was interesting. Um, I think it's hard to kind of evaluate this draft right now because it's so unique. And I think it's hard in general to evaluate a draft immediately after because, quite frankly, we get a lot of these guys wrong every year. Scouts get guys wrong every year. People pan out in ways that we didn't ex expect or anticipate. And there's still plenty of development to be done. So... I think this is just part of the process and the Braves have done a pretty good job in player development. And that's kind of the second piece that you need to add to this, but we'll see what happens. I, I thought that the, um, the, the problem they had when they formulated a plan for the draft and, you know, this whole th idea, Jake wrote a couple of weeks ago that the whole idea of taking the best player on the board only means you take, you take the best player you can afford on the board. If, if, if you take a, a, a first rounder uh, like Abel or somebody in the first round, mm -hmm. you're going to pay him full slot and maybe a little more because he's a high school guy and he can go to college. So he's going to get what he asks for. And in a four-round pick, especially when you lose the slot money from round two, 
you don't have as much leeway to go say, well, I'll pick up a couple of $5,000 dies in round 9 and 10 and, and smooth this out. So I thought that was uh, that was the problem with it. It was just the draft wasn't long enough to give them enough enough leeway to do it. I'm real high on on uh, Schuster and Franklin. Mm-hmm. I'm not all that high on Elder. Uh, can you convince me Elder was a good idea instead of Parada or one of those other guys that was out there? Because I don't think he's that good. I think he's a back of the rotation guy. Maybe I don't know. I'm not even sure he makes it at this point. I mean, I, I looked at his stuff and I'm not impressed. But maybe maybe he is that guy. Convince me that Elder is worth taking. Yeah, I actually think Elder is pretty good value in the fifth round. We had him as a top 100 guy. He was number 83 on our board. I think, I mean, if you could get a back of the rotation arm in the fifth round, that's a huge win, kind of no matter what team you are. Like fifth round is basically dart throwing in most drafts. And I, I've talked to a number of kind of scouting scouting sources and front office execs, execs, and they said this year, if you get two major leaguers in, in any capacity, you crush the draft. I mean, you're batting 400 in most cases if you get two major leaguers. So I think it should be viewed as an absolute win if you get a back of the rotation starter and a guy like Elder. I think in general with the draft, I think it's really easy to get excited about like future all-stars, but it's very hard to get those players, and there aren't a ton of those guys in any given draft class. This year's particularly deep. I do like his pitch mix. Um, maybe like you were kind of alluding to, it's not the most electric pitch mix that you've ever seen. It's more of like 88 to 93 sinking fastball. He gets a lot of ground outs. Slider is probably his best pitch now. Chance to be an above average offering. And he's shown uh, good progress with the changeup as well. But kind of that sinker slider type who's produced over the last two years. His freshman year out of the bullpen wasn't super impressive, but he really started to kind of take those steps forward in his development over the last two years of his college career. I'd have been interested to see kind of what this year was going to look like for him because I think he is one of those college performer types that you just want to see that track record at school. He was off to a pretty good start this year. Um, but no, I think that's a that's a pretty good value pick in the fifth round for me, 156, and we had him at in the 80s on our board. So I like that pick. Um, I think Strider is the more confusing one for me from my perspective, especially after hearing that he signed for slot. So again, that probably just speaks to the difference in individual teams' boards that we just can't see. Yeah, and, and Elder was somebody that I was actually a little high on me, and Fred didn't quite see eye on that one. And that's probably because I watched that game against LSU that he, he pitched earlier this year, and it was one of the best mm-hmm. games that I watched in the short season. And, you know, he was he just seems like that guy that – I know he doesn't have the best stuff, but he just goes out there and, and performs. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he had 10 strikeouts in that game, and it's not the, the best LSU lineup that I've ever seen. But still, that, that performance on that stage – um, you know, mm-hmm. I think that was in the Shriners Classic, maybe, or it was in some tournament there. Yeah, was, the last a, two years, he's got like a sub three ERA, close to 10 strikeouts per nine, three and a half walks per nine, and like 120, 130 innings. It's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, like I said, I think it's good value there. I still don't see him as, as anything more than a, you know, a ceiling of a mid-rotation guy. But like you said, even if you get that, and I think that's interesting what you said about this draft and kind of the, the outlook from it is that, you know, if you, you get two guys that make it to the majors, that's kind of considered a, a win. And Oh, absolutely. And that's, and that's kind of what my, you know, next question is. You know, outside of really just the Braves, I've never seen a draft like this in, in my lifetime. You know, I don't know the last time the draft's been – you know, is as short as this one, um, if ever. But, you know, it, did it seem like teams kind of 
were, were didn't really know how to handle the draft or the, there's some decisions that were made that were, you know, maybe a little questionable. It seems like there were a lot of surprises early in the draft mm-hmm. that, that threw a lot of teams off. Um, did, did you kind of see some of that happening from teams just in, in how weird of a draft this was? Yeah, I was, I think I was a little bit more surprised with how aggressive a few teams still got and kind of playing those uh, signing bonus games. The, the White Sox are probably the best example of this. They got, Garrett Crochet in the first round, who we viewed as a very legit first round talent. And then they got Jared Kelly in the second round after he slid. Again, uh, a very legit middle of the first round or better talent on our board. That's kind of like the Mets strategy a year ago where they went really heavy on on three high upside preps and then went senior sign the rest of the, de- the rest of the way. The White Sox did that with two players up top. And then presumably, I haven't seen the bonuses for the rest of their guys, but presumably they went way under slot to sign both of them. So a few teams definitely still use some of the same strategies that we saw in previous drafts. And actually outside of maybe two picks in the first round and the, uh, and the comp round, I think it was pretty chalky. Um, I think there were two players who were outside of our top 50 that were taken among the first 37 picks. And the two who were outside of that top 50 range were still top 100 guys. Uh, Nick York was the furthest off the board pick. That was the Red Sox first selection. Uh, And with them not having a second rounder, wondering if he was going to make it to their third round pick, I can see the sense that that would make. I mean, the first line of our scouting report for Nick York says that some scouts believe he was the best prep hitter on the West Coast. That's that's better than guys like Pete Armstrong and Tyler Soderstrom, guys who were kind of no-brainer first rounders when they came off the board. The, The second pick that was a bit surprising for me was Baltimore at number two. We heard rumblings of them kind of doing the underslot route like they'd previously done, or at least their their leadership had done previously with the Astros. Uh, and the fact that it was cursed at was a little bit surprising to me. But even after he went second, I think the guys who went in the top 10 were all kind of the expected names. And then, again, outside of York, everyone who was taken up top made a lot of sense. So while it definitely is the most unique draft we've ever seen, the shortest draft we've ever seen, I think the players who went up top, it wasn't as surprising. It didn't get as wild as, as I would have expected, I guess, going into it. But we're definitely going to look back on this draft and just kind of learn a lot of things from it, I think. I think there are going to be a lot of players who you're going to look back on in 10 years and be like, how is he available? And kind of vice versa. Why did, why did that team take this player so high? Just because the evaluation period for this year's draft was so unique and, and so much shorter than typical. Well, let me go the other direction then. There was this rumor that somebody was going to tank the draft and basically try and and sabotage their own picks so they could get them next year. The only team I could think of that sort of kind of may have gone that direction might have been Texas. But, I mean, did anybody do that to some extent or any extent? No, I don't think so. I think that rumor was pretty ludicrous. I mean, we JJ wrote an article pretty quickly about (laughs) why that made no sense. I mean, first of all, it's a huge slap in the face to all of your scouts that have spent the entire year scouting. Uh, It's a big slap in the face to the players that you're picking. uh, And it's a big slap in the face to your fans to just say, hey, we're punting on the draft. We know this is where we get exceptional value for players uh, at the cheapest rate we ever can. And one of the deepest drafts we've had in recent years, we're just going to skip it. That that just doesn't make any sense to me. Like even outside of the financial issues, I mean, all this money is getting deferred. So the financial argument doesn't really hold a lot of water for me. I think... Texas's draft is is a bit weird. Uh, I don't think it's them punting. I think it's probably just a case of them 
liking players more than the the public perception of the players. And, and that happens every year. I think it, it maybe can be extrapolated a bit this year because it's a five-round draft and you don't have a ton of players kind of look through and maybe a ton of players who would have been more on the board, a little bit higher. But, I mean, all the players were on the BA 500 except for Evan Carter. So it's a similar situation with the Braves. Like, there's one guy that they took in five rounds that we didn't have on our top 500. I talked to some scouts who do like Evan Carter. Most of the guys we've talked to thought of him as a college guy. But I think those picks do happen every year. The fact that it was in the second round uh, and the fact that it, like I said, is such a shorter draft, maybe you can look in on it a little bit harder. But to think any team would actually be punting in the draft is just kind of, I think, getting a little bit too crazy. The 20K guys that uh, the Braves look to be doing, they've signed like six 20K guys now. And it looks like much of this draft, like a lot of last year's draft, is designed to fill in the holes in the minor leagues that was caused by the penalty picks and the lost picks over the last few years. But Cam Shepard seems like a seems like a great pickup to me. Uh, tell us a little bit about what you know about Cam. Yeah, I really like Cam Shepard a lot. He was the the number one available senior that we had. I think he was the second senior ranked on RBA 500 after Landon Knack, the pitcher out of Tennessee. But Shepard was a guy who we had on our BA 500 last year, and he just, uh, I think it was a tough sign. He wanted to go back to school at Georgia for his senior year. They had legit College World Series aspirations, but I thought this was one of the better undrafted free agent uh, signings. He's got a very solid all-around game. He's not a super toolsy player, but he's performed at a high level at Georgia for his entire career. He takes a professional at-bat. He doesn't have a ton of power. He doesn't have a ton of speed, uh, but he can work a count. He's kind of a line drive, gap-to-gap type hitter. And I think the thing that stands out with him probably the most is just he's very sure-handed at shortstop. Again, he's not the flashiest player in the world. He's not going to be an Angleton Simmons type defender that Braves fans have seen for a long time. Uh, He doesn't have that kind of range or definitely not that kind of arm strength, but he'll make all the plays you need him to make. He'll make a couple of the plays you didn't expect him to make. He has really good instincts really all over the baseball field, but especially on the defensive side. Uh, he was a guy who had pedigree going back to his high school days. He was drafted by the Rays previously. So I really like this pick and the fact that they're able to get a talent like this for, for 20000 is just another reason why tanking on, on this year's draft is such a silly idea because getting a guy of that kind of talent is, is pretty exceptional for $20,000. He's clearly worth more than that, even in the capped market uh, that drafted players are normally looking at. So Rays fans should be very happy about that. He's a guy who I think could probably move uh, pretty quickly. Maybe he can fill a utility role for the team. I'm sure he could play all over the infield and hold his own as a hitter. But no, I, I really like that one a lot. We had him uh, at 298, I believe, on our 500. Yeah, I'm really excited about Cam. Again, I'm a big college baseball guy, and I love watching him play the last couple of mm-hmm. years. So I was really excited to see that pick. And Yeah, and just a local uh, guy, too. That's got yeah, to right. add to the intrigue. Right. So hopefully, you know, in Cam, he was such a big prospect coming out of high school, too. And just mm-hmm. he never really hit like we kind of thought or thought he would. You know, I would have loved to see what happened. And it kept, you know, everybody was saying it all over the, the draft broadcast night. You know, this guy was held back by a shortened season. But, mm-hmm. you know, you feel like it was that way with a lot of people and with, with Cam, too. You know, obviously, Georgia didn't play the, the hardest schedule to start their year uh, outside of a series with Georgia Tech. But, you know, he was showing pretty good numbers. The average, you know, wasn't still quite what you wanted it to be, but he already had four home runs in 18 games. Um, you know, there's a possibility he could have got double digits this year. So I'm excited, you know, about Cam. 
moving on from that, I think uh, Alan may have more on some of these undrafted guys. But uh, as far as your overall thoughts on the draft, you know, who are some teams you think did well? And then specifically, you know, the teams in the NL East, who, who do you think had a good draft? Yeah, that's a good one. I mean, the first the first teams that come to my mind from this year's draft, I mean, I really give a lot of credit to the White Sox for getting that aggressive. I've already talked about them a little bit, so I won't spend too much time on them. Another team that I'm always, at least the past few years, I always just come away impressed with are the Padres. I mean, they're kind of the team that employs that high upside. We're going after tools. We're taking the traditional kind of scouting route, and we're just going after upside. We don't care about the risk. Yeah, they were uh, they so take, high school heavy in, in this draft, which really surprised Exactly. Me. I mean, their first three picks were high schoolers. They got maybe the best prep high school bat in the class in Robert Hassel in terms of a pure hitter. They took maybe the biggest pure arm talent in the draft in Justin Lang, who's a high school guy who's exceptionally raw. Like, there's a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of turning him into a pitcher, refining his secondaries, getting his uh, arm action a little bit more consistent. Uh, in the zone more, but he's got an arm that's up to 100 miles per hour, and he's added significant strength and weight over the last year. Another guy, Owen Cassie. Uh, some people think he's the best Canadian prospect in this class. We had him as the second, uh, but he's kind of a, a power corner outfield projection type. And then they got Cole Wilcox in the third round. This is mm-hmm. one of those guys who, if you want to go under slot early and get some get some talent later that you give an over slot deal to, this was the guy who was, he was waiting around for the longest time. And we thought of him as a 20 to 30 pick kind of talent, like a legitimate first round guy with, again, big upside. He's another guy who's a local guy for Braves fans uh, coming out of Georgia, but a fastball up to 100, good breaking ball. And he showed good uh, progress in his strike throwing this spring. So that's one that excites me. Um, The Phillies were interesting. They were a little bit more risky than I would have expected given a first year scouting director, but they took Mick Abel, who we had as the best prep pitcher in the class um, with their first pick at 15. And then they doubled down on the like high risk, high reward type with Casey Martin in the third round. And and I do think there are some questions about Martin's hitting ability. Uh, He's had a pretty high strikeout rate over the past two years and was off to a really slow start this spring. Uh, But his tool set is exceptional. And we had him as a, a first round talent entering the year, slipped him down, just outside of that because of the struggles. But if they can figure out how to get him to contact the ball a little bit more consistently, maybe clean up the approach a little bit, get a little bit less aggressive. He's a plus plus runner with plus power. Uh, and he's got all the, the physical tools you want to see to stick at shortstop and make some pretty athletic highlight real plays there. So I think that pick in the third round specifically uh, was really interesting. And I think that's pretty good value at that, at that point, even with his risk, I think it's worth it. I think the Mets draft was kind of exciting. They took three guys at the top that are pretty, pretty electric talents and then got what looked to be some uh, money savers after that. Pete Crow Armstrong and Isaiah Green are both uh, hitterish center fielders with plus running ability. Pete Crow Armstrong is obviously the more famous and probably the mo- more well-rounded of the two prep outfielders they took. And then JT Ginn in the second round, again, I thought that was great value. There's obviously risks because he had surgery early this year after throwing just three innings. But at his best, he's a guy with two plus-plus pitches and a fastball and a slider. Uh, And he also showed plus control um, when he actually got a full season. Uh, So I think that's a a draft that also jumps out to me, uh, just from the the division. Okay, this five-round draft, 
has really messed up things. Of course, everything was messed up to begin with. But who gets hurt the worst here? Is this high school players that are rising up? Uh, collegiate players, minor leaguers mm-hmm. already in the system? Who, who gets hurt the worst from this? And how long does this linger? Yeah, I think in, in terms of the draft, I think the high school players probably got hurt the most. I mean, I believe I would have to check the numbers again to just be sure, but I believe it was the highest percentage of college players um, that we've seen in a draft, just in terms of right. overall draftees. So they probably got hurt the the most in that sense. Uh, and and all the players are getting hurt in the sense that there are fewer opportunities and less money going around in an already capped environment. But I think now kind of with the draft in the rearview mirror, the, the people that are getting hurt the worst now are players getting squeezed out of college uh, scholarships, uh, squeezed out of college spots on their baseball team. And we've even seen a couple of teams, a couple of college programs shut down. Obviously, that not all of those things are tied specifically to a five-round draft and a shortened draft, but I think most of the issues that are going to come at the college level are because fewer of those players who are expected to move on, fewer of them actually did so. Uh, so college coaches are going to have a really tough time figuring out the roster crunch, figuring out the eligibility and scholarship situations. I think from a fan standpoint, the the talent of college baseball over the next three years is going to be pretty significant. Uh, it'll be pretty fun to watch all of these really talented players when, when typically a lot of them, I mean, hundreds more of them would not have been in the college game. So that's the positive you can take from this. I do think the next few draft classes will be artificially deepened because of that they're just players back in the pool who are going to be available again next year's draft and and two years from now so i think that's no go ahead i just want to follow up on on the scholarship thing i was just curious as to whether there's any rumblings about reducing the scholarship levels even more which is kind of scary to think of I think they've expanded some of the scholarship stuff just to make it a little bit easier. I think the NCAA was pretty smart in knowing that there is a crunch they were going to have to deal with in terms of extending eligibility and just being able to spread around those dollars more. But there are going to be more players on campus now. And I think college baseball was already um, trying to get more scholarships for the players they had. So I definitely think that college baseball could use some more money to give out to their players. I mean, we want to get the most talented players we can in our game. And and getting them scholarships at the college level is a great way to kind of do that. I know there are a lot of two sport players who just the money is in other sports. So if we want to make our game as strong as we can, we need to try and figure out a way to get them to, to come to school and play baseball. But um, no, I, I think that it's just a tough situation. Uh, there are some coaches who, who don't think that additional eligibility should have been given because of the roster crunch, but I think it makes a lot of sense. I mean, none of these players were expecting this to be their last year when they were healthy and ready to go. So it's just, it's a crappy situation all around outside of baseball, but yeah, we'll have to move through it and see what happens. Yeah. You, you talked about the, the draft being short this year, but I was doing some research earlier and really when you get past round 20, there's not a huge chance of anybody actually getting to the majors. I do mm-hmm. something like, after round 20 since 1965, 90 people have made it to the majors. Mm-hmm. And my guess is those 90 people would have made it anyway because scouts don't miss people like that. So with the way the draft went and the MLB trying to shrink minor league ball and eliminate some teams, is it you, you see a shorter than 40-round 40, 40 draft in the future, 20 rounds maybe? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so in the agreement that the, the Players Association and MLB came to uh, several months ago, they said that uh, next year's 
draft would be a minimum of 20 rounds. Uh, I, I, I would be surprised if we went back to 40 just because of the things you mentioned, just the minor league contraction, uh, getting rid of around 40 minor league teams in all likelihood is going to happen. Um, I think 40 rounds even in the current minor league system is probably a little too much. Um, partially to, to what you were saying there, Fred, just the hit rates on those guys is so low that I think um, you could probably shorten it uh, beforehand and be fine. But I think 20 to 30 rounds somewhere in that range is probably going to become the new norm um, just based on how the owners have operated. I, I think you could probably guess towards the lower end of that range and probably be more accurate. But I do think 25 rounds would probably be enough to get get the job done, get the players you need to give opportunities uh, let your area scouts go out and kind of get some work done in the later rounds, take chances on guys they believe in that, that might not be like the consensus kind of top three round types that you, you do see some of those pan out. Um, but yeah, I don't think we're going to be seeing a 40 round draft anytime soon again. Yeah. I thought, uh, uh, you know, one thing I can guarantee is if the union said 30 rounds, it'll be say 20 and we <laughs> would argue about 24 or 26 for three months. Um, yeah. It's, uh, but I, you know, I, I did this, the, the thing and post about that. And, and I agree. I was thinking 20, 25 rounds is about it. Uh, but, uh, it, this whole system, um, this year, um, I was listening to Brian's billboards. He said, this is mess. This messes up every, every player's preparation because uh, you go out and you play a, a 60 game season or a 66 game season. And you know, the players are like they're, you're stacking starters to give them all three innings a game or something. And you go into the winter not knowing what you have to get, do to get ready for the next year, particularly younger players. So that kind of worries me a bit. I, I, I jumped in there when it was Jake's turn, but I just wanted to <laughs> say that and get out of my life. But, but you know, I think the, the, minor, the minor league system became something more than, uh, than it was, was designed to be. And I think it's shrinking back to something what we what it could be. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no doubt. Well, and something maybe along those lines. I know you're a draft guy, Carlos, and you may not um, have any insight on this, but you know I've heard talks of maybe them increasing the Arizona Fall League this year. Do you think there's anything? And, and I know a lot of as far as the college ranks go, which I know you um, pay more attention to. I know a lot of summer leagues have been already been canceled. Uh, I guess one specifically for the college guys, what are what are their opportunities going to be this summer and, and into the fall to to get more reps, or or is there going to be a possibility at all? Yeah, I think you probably see a lot a lot more of the examples of a guy like Bryce Jarvis who didn't really play in a summer league, but kind of just took the time to develop himself as a pitcher. Whether that's uh, working out on your own uh, with Rapsodo and kind of electronic feedback to develop your pitch mix, whether that's getting stronger. Uh, or whether that's going to facilities like Driveline or working with Eric Cressy or working with individual trainers. Um, there's still a lot of development that can be had, particularly for the pitchers, without going to these leagues. Obviously, getting the exposure and the additional game reps against some of the best uh, college players in the class or in the country, like you get at the Cape Cod League, that you can't replicate that without those leagues actually going on. And, and the Cape's not happening this year, so that's Definitely a huge platform for just exposure and scouting opportunities for major league teams and development for the players. I do think there's there's a lot you can do to get better and to kind of refine your game, but it's hard to replace those in-game reps, uh, as I think most people would probably tell you. I think players have already started to get creative in kind of their workout regimens and what they're able to do. I think this is probably the case for for every sport, right? Like it's not a it's not a typical year for anyone. I, I do think 
the point about losing a year of development time, I'm very curious to see how this affects players at the amateur level and at the minor league level. I mean, even players, young players who had already kind of established themselves in the major leagues, like what does this do for a guy like Ronald Acuna? Like, does this have any sort of impact on his development as a major league player? I mean, it will probably be pretty hard to separate this and say, okay, he's struggling because the development was more limited, but I do think it's going to affect a lot of players. Some, some are kind of motivated within themselves enough to, to make the most of it. And I think for some players, it's going to hurt to not have that kind of built in structure and discipline uh, to kind of go out there every day. But there are a few leagues that are going on uh, just kind of depending what state you're in and the rules I know there are, for the high school guys, they are still having PG National, which is one of the bigger showcases. A lot of the, the showcases and tournaments at the high school level, they're still happening uh, somehow. It's definitely much less of a scouting presence right now. Um, but yeah, there, there are so many ramifications that are still ongoing for this that it's kind of hard to see through the fog and see what it's going to turn out to be for a lot of these players. Yeah, and Alan, we'll have to edit out that blasphemous part about Acuna maybe dipping the direction. <laughs> um, I, I just think it's worth considering. I mean, he's a young guy who, like, he's he still has areas in his game where he needs to refine. I mean, pl- plate discipline, pitch recognition, being a, just a more complete hitter, like, this would he would be improving in that area right now. I still think he's one of the best players in the league, but... Running I mean, to first base hard, you know, that kind of thing. Oh, yeah, after he carried the, the entire team on his back in the division. Come on. Yeah. Right. <laughs> now, oddly, this might be a thing that hurts Austin Riley more than anybody else. Actually, yeah, I was all these guys just looking to establish themselves. Like it's, Christian it's, Pache and mm-hmm. his hitting, yeah. Yep. That, that was the guy I was thinking of. Yeah, um, you could probably go down the list and point to every prospect in the system and say they're going to be hurt because of this and go down the list, like everyone. Last one for me. It has to do with the undrafted free agents out there. We've seen a, a spate of signings all around the league so far. I'm wondering if some of the better guys, the college seniors, are trying to still decide whether they're going to go back to school or come on out as, as pros and, and whether there's going to be a trickling of those and, and for how long and how many per team. They, it, it, this is obviously uncharted territory. I'm just wondering what, what you're hearing on all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it definitely is. I think the amount of players has probably been right around where I expected. Some teams are being really aggressive. Uh, teams like the Yankees, the Red Sox, the Padres, and Royals, they've been pretty aggressive in getting guys. Actually kind of shocking to me how many talented players the Royals have got to, to sign for 20K. But I was talking with a few different advisors and, and different scouts early on in the process, and they expected kind of the, the more high-profile guys who were going to get interest from a majority of the teams um, for 20K, they just kind of expected that process to be a little bit more drawn out. I know there are a lot of players who were going to kind of filter down their list to a top five and then kind of have more deliberate meetings with each of their top five teams just to see which program, uh, which club, and which kind of player development staff or system would put them in the best positions to win at the next level. Um, it's obviously a, a unique situation for players to be able to pick where they're going to be able to play and develop as professional players. So I think that's that's something they shouldn't uh, jump the gun on, especially if they're getting interest from, I mean, a majority of the teams in the game. And there are plenty of players out there who I think are probably still going through those decisions. Uh, Blake Brown is a guy who just signed with the Phillies. Uh, he was 375 on RBA 500, who I, who I would imagine is one of those players that had a lot of interest and, and took some time to make that decision. Um, so I would, I would think there are still plenty of guys out there 
um, who are debating between teams. And then, like you said, there are probably still some guys who are kind of going back and forth and trying to see, is it a good time for me to jump to pro ball, even with these financial limitations? Uh, what is my college situation looking like? I think things are just probably so fluid um, that more days and time can probably help clear up that picture. So I would imagine there's a steady trickle uh, for the next few weeks, at least. Some of these guys, uh, I was reading um, uh, on the Athletic Day about exactly that. Some of these teams have signed six and eight and ten people because they see the minor league system is so thin that they're going to get to move up quickly. But one of the scouts said something that that uh, nobody really actually says in public often, and he was anonymous. When he said, he said, you know, we sign these kids up and we tell them, yeah, get out there. You're going to get the best development. You're going to get the best chance. You're going to do all these things. He said, and, and most of them, uh, we know most of them aren't going to make it. And we, we never say that out loud. So mm-hmm. it, this this makes it even worse. I mean, doesn't it? I mean, these guys, some of these guys, these top 500 guys, you'll see them come through and they'll pitch a year or two and they'll get some, you know, you'll find a relief pitcher, the pop-up starter, somebody like that will get in the game. But a lot of these guys, they, they're out there for their, living their dream and nobody's telling them it could turn into a nightmare. You feel that, that that's always the case. In other words, are these teams actually fibbing to them and then they out rounds and these guys are signing for money or are they just getting their money and getting a chance to live or do they really think they've got a chance? What, what you know, I don't know. I mean, if, you, if you're if you signing a pro contract, I mean, you kind of have to believe that you have a chance, right? Like if, if you didn't, you probably would just be getting a degree and getting a regular job like the rest of us. Like, <laughs> I think all of these guys have something in them that a scout has seen that's that's going to give them a chance. Obviously, some players are more talented than others and, and some players you you feel more comfortable than others. But I mean, there are so many stories of, of players who made it that most people probably didn't expect them to make it. And and I think especially with, with player development these days, you can transform yourself as a player so quickly that I think it's just very hard to, to kind of have a, a black and white view of, is this player going to make it? Is this player not going to make it? Is he just here to make our real prospects better? You know, those conversations, uh, I'm sure they happen, but it, it's hard. I think if teams took it seriously, and I think there are a lot of financial reasons why you would you could make a good case that they don't. If the teams took player development seriously, they should be trying to give every single player in their organization the best opportunity and the best uh, attention and coaching, nutrition, development, all that to, to become as, as good as they possibly can. Because the goal at the end of the day is to win for the major league team. And if, if you can do that as a first rounder, great. If you can do that as an undrafted pick, uh, and surprise everyone and add some sort of value to the major league club, then great. Um, but I think if we if we aren't taking it seriously with all the players, then I don't really understand what we're doing here. Yeah, and, and last thing uh, for me, Carlos, is is it too early to start the hashtag tank for Kumar? <laughs> yeah, we we need a we need a good one. Uh, the past few years we've had uh, play badly for Adley and then tank for Torque. <laughs> Uh, Kumar, I think it will take a little bit more time to get one that sticks. I've already seen a couple of good ones, but I think it's fair. I mean, he's definitely the most famous player in college baseball now. Uh, he has the physicality. He has the stuff. So why not? We'll see how it plays out. But, I mean, right now he's one of our favorites for the 1-1 pick. Um, yeah, he's, and it's going to be fun. Yeah, he's definitely exciting. I, I hope the, Bra- the Braves don't have to tank for him. And who knows if we have a season <laughs> to tank anyway, you know. Um, but yeah, he's definitely an exciting player and, um, I'm sure he's going to be on the top of a lot of Mm -hmm. mock drafts coming up over the the next year. Um, but Carlos, thank you so much for, for joining us. We really appreciate the conversation. Um, is there anything you'd like to plug before we get out of here? I know you do have, um, your early top 10, 
uh, mock for 2020 out there, but um, Twitter, anything you want to plug real quick? Yeah, if, if you want to follow me on Twitter, you can at Carlos A. Colazzo. We're already kind of jumping into the 2021 stuff. So uh, if you guys are really looking to get a jump start on next year's draft class, uh, you can follow me there. And then as always, every all of my writing is at Baseball America uh, and just outside of draft stuff, all the guys there do do excellent, excellent work covering the minor league game. Uh, JJ has been doing an excellent job covering uh, the minor league negotiations and the uh, contraction and, and realignment story that's been ongoing. Uh, Teddy and Joe Healy do a great job on the college beat. So yeah, just support Baseball America if you guys are interested in these kind of conversations because this is kind of the stuff that we talk about every day there. So we appreciate Now we just support. need to get him to tag Tomahawk Take in his bio instead of that silly <laughs> Tar Heel <laughs> thing. <laughs> what's, what's the Tar Heel thing I have? Oh, there's something about do you work for the the I guess is the Daily Tar Heel. Uh, oh yeah, I, I don't think I have day. that in my bio, but that was yeah UNC student newspaper for sure. <laughs> Gotta rip that. <laughs> um, well, well, thanks again, Carlos and uh, Fred. Now, thank you guys as well as always, and uh, thank you all for uh, listening to this episode of the Tomahawk Take podcast. And we'll talk to you again real soon. This 2020 post-post-draft edition of the Tomahawk Take podcast is a production of TomahawkTake.com and fansided LLC, now a subsidiary of Minute Media, Inc. Opinions expressed on the show today are strictly those of the participants, all rights reserved. Special thanks to Baseball America's Carlos Colazzo for checking out Fred's photos and realizing that he really didn't have a choice but to sit in with us today. We'll send those negatives out soon, I promise. One of the musical selections used today comes to you under the auspices of the Creative Commons license, terms of which are available at creativecommons.org slash licenses slash buy slash 4.0. That piece by Kevin McLeod is entitled Fuzzball Parade. His works are featured at incompetech.filmmusic.io. All other musical selections come under rights purchased by tomahawktake.com. Thank you for listening today, and may all of your site's ex-writers go on to bigger and better things, too. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.